Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joette Katz has an important job. For more than five years, she's led the Connecticut Department of Children and Families after serving as a state Supreme Court justice. Today, Commissioner Katz and her deputy commissioner, Fernando Muniz, join us to talk about the department's work serving children. Do you have a question or comment about the Department of Children and Families? As always, we want to hear from you today. That number, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I don't want to uh, introduce and welcome back to the show uh, DCF Commissioner Joette Katz. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Also, her deputy, Deputy Commissioner Fernando Muniz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, uh, Commissioner Katz, five years is a long time to lead the Child Protection um, Agency in the state of Connecticut. Um, I've heard it described often as like a thankless job because no matter how many successes you may see, it's the setbacks that get the most attention. How do you think you've done so far? Well, I'm just going to correct you for the record, and January 5th, it will be six years. Oh, six years. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, So how do I think? Well, I want to clarify also, I don't think it's a question of how I've done. I think it's really how the department's done. And uh, if you look at national standards, if you look at people like the Annie Casey Foundation, if you look at other commissioners, I would say we've done very well. Is there room for improvement? Always. So where would you like to see your agency that you lead? Obviously, the staff does a lot of the work, but you're leading this agency, a very important agency in the state of Connecticut. Where do you need to improve? Well, our budget is about $100 million less than it was when I came in, and I don't see that changing in the foreseeable future. So for us, it's, uh, I think, enhancing our ability to continue to do public-private philanthropy We launched one of the first social impact bonds uh, projects in the country around foster care, substance-abusing parents. Uh, I think we need to figure out better ways of of doing that and, uh, frankly, finding additional federal dollars to be able to, to continue to enhance the service delivery of the agency. We've reduced congregate care dramatically. We don't have kids out of state uh, regularly. I think I said before we could probably, I could probably give you the Social Security numbers of the kids who are out of state. But the families we're serving uh, are intense. They continue to have needs. And as we've saved every dollar in congregate care, we've been able to put 79 cents back into the community. And Fernando, um, amongst other things, oversees our book of business regarding uh, fiscal And so I'd like to be able to continue to do that. Uh, We've enhanced a lot of work around mental health, expanding EMPS, et cetera. But I think we need to continue to do more of that because as we keep more kids at home or in foster families, we need to be able to find resources to continue to serve their both mental health needs, their parents' mental health needs. uh, And, um, you know, it's no secret we have a huge substance abuse problem. Uh, in this state as well as elsewhere. And again, uh, domestic violence continues to be an issue. So all of this is to say that we need to be able to continue to to serve families uh, in the community through wraparound funds and need to be able to figure out better ways to do it and more money with which to do it. 
Uh, more money is something that all uh, state agencies are looking for to do their work. And uh, because uh, the budget uh, crunch over the last few years is getting worse, you mentioned uh, social uh, impact bonds. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a different way of finding money to help you continue your mission? Exactly. So uh, through social finance, which was the intermediary in Massachusetts, they brought together private funders. And essentially, it's it's found money. We only have to repay it if we are 100% successful. And in the meantime, it allows us to expand services and delivery to our families and keep more children at home. And the initial, uh, the initial hard sell there, so to speak, was, you know, when you're going to private industry and you say, look, we, we want money to serve uh, families who have uh, substance abuse problems, let's say, for example, and we want to be able to do that so they'll keep their kids at home. And at first, the, the visceral reaction is, well, why do we want to serve all of these people with substance abuse problems, et cetera. And then you explain to them fiscally, well, if you don't, you end up bringing their children into care. What does it cost to raise three kids in foster care for 18 years? You do the math. And suddenly it becomes a bargain. So we're reaching out. That's one one way we're doing uh, enhancing our, our book of business. You mentioned uh, reducing congregate care has been an important um, success. Um, when you look at before you became commissioner, how many kids were in residential, even being sent out of state. But we hear from parents who have um, especially adopted, uh, people who have adopted children from the system, who um, have adopted uh, children who unfortunately have seen lots of trauma in their lives, have many mental health issues. And you know they are critical of the fact that when they, they say, and they tell us, they tell other advocates, when they want help when their child has reached a point where they're being hospitalized often and they feel like you know the in-home counseling that DCF provides it's not enough they want to be able to know that they can then send that child the state can help them send that child to intensive residential treatment um, we heard from a, a, a parent um, from a, a last show that we did on this I just want to hear have her um, explain to you um, what ICAPS did for her and her child that needed help they instituted ICAPS which was another failure. Um, it's two young social work degreed people who have no experience dealing with these intense behavioral issues or the intense mental health needs. They come and they provide really, I, I can't call it counseling as so much as expensive babysitting time to give the parents and the family a break. The lack of services is just devastating children foremost and families throughout this state. And that's Julie from Farmington again. Um, She's criticizing this in-home counseling that DCF provides. How do you respond to parents like her? Well, so let me clear the or clarify the record. We do put children uh, in treatment facilities. We do it regularly, but it's really about treatment. It's not about raising them there. So we have, um, obviously, we have Solnit, which is our own psychiatric hospital, north and south. And, uh, and not only is there the psychiatric hospital piece of it, there's the PRTF, which is a step-down unit. And we fund, I think last time I looked, 80, and Fernando again can correct me if I'm wrong, I think 80 what we call SFIT beds, which are short-term um, uh, beds for children who need intense psychiatric treatment uh, with the with the ability to be then reunified with their families. So we have lots of opportunities and lots of options. Children uh, can certainly get access to those beds and and regularly do. And most of this, if not all of it actually, is is done through Beacon. So the kids are matched. there's a, there's a cans that's put together, and uh, a team of psychiatrists and psychologists look at these children 
and determine what is the best fit for them and match them accordingly. I'm not a doctor. I don't do that. I'm the final authority, but clearly when cases come to me, they have already had a huge amount of work done on them for purposes of proper placement. Um, what is your response to a story that uh, the Connecticut Health Investigative Team did recently, um, the term trading custody for care? So again, uh, parents who have adopted children with severe uh, trauma in their lives, uh, mental health um, needs, and when they, they have reported that these parents, when they go to DCF to ask for, um, again, intensive help because they don't know what else to do to help these children. Um, they have been told by their caseworker or social worker, well, for us to be able to do that, you need to then um, sign an uncared for petition so that that way we can then get them into that kind of treatment. Can you talk about that? Can you respond to that report? Sure. So I think, um, I, again, I think there's some misunderstanding. Kids come in. We don't want children to have to come into care and custody. I've spent a lot of time working very hard to make sure, and that's, that was our whole differential response system, to be able to divert cases away from the department. So the last thing I want to do is take people's children in order to serve them. So we have voluntary services, and it comes in through the care line, and then the cases get farmed out to the various offices, depending upon where people live. Uh, families do have to fill out financial forms because often we know there is private insurance, and particularly in when we're talking in these fiscal times, that becomes that much more important. And they have to fill out financial forms, and I know a lot of times they don't want to do that, so that's one issue. Um, and the other is, you know, there's there's a um, a tension uh, to put it to put it nicely. I think there's a tension with parents who are who find themselves in that situation. Often, uh, they have had enough. I mean, I'm not going to talk about every single family, but I can tell you there have been a couple of dozen cases that I've asked my legal department. Again, I'm not the one who's the only person who's reviewing these files. I've had our chief legal officers throughout the state look at a lot of these cases. And what we're finding in many of the instances is that parents have essentially abandoned their children. They have. Not in every instance. I do not want to by any means... um, castigate everybody. But but in a number of cases, we have found that to be the case. And that's a hard thing. That's a, and, I, and I understand how parents might get to that point. But a lot of them have said, we're done. We can't do this anymore. And I understand it. And it doesn't mean that we're going to move to terminate the parental rights. But it does mean that we, at that point, we have no choice but to step in and to take care and custody of that child. And that also then means that we have to help dictate, if not drive, the psychiatric interventions. And parents may not always be happy with that. And hopefully we can uh, reach reach some sort of a, an accommodation. But um, again, in a lot of those cases, we have seen parents actually just say, we're done. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm speaking with DCF Commissioner Joette Katz. Her deputy commissioner is also here, Fernando Muniz. If you have a question or comment, 860-275-7266. I wanted to turn back to Commissioner Katz before we go to a quick break and then take some calls. Um, you know, when we talked to the reporter who did that story, Lisa Chetical, and she profiled some of these parents, these parents were heartbroken. They didn't want to abandon their children, but they felt like they had no other option. Um, so you know, I guess, are, are your hands tied because of the state, you know, financial issues where you have to be very careful about, you know, what kind of services you can give a child? Because unfortunately, you can't, you know, spend a ton of money on every child who needs, um, you know, really intensive help. No, I don't, I don't think it's a fiscal situation. I mean, the couple of cases that come to mind are sometimes parents don't agree to take a child back. So in other words, let's assume we're coming in through voluntary services. We've, we've provided residential care and treatment for a child. And the medical team says, this child can go home. 
This child should go home. This child is ready for discharge with wraparound services. And parents are saying, no, no, can't, can't do it. We, we, we're not equipped. We can't do it. Well, if, if we have me- the medical professionals telling us this child is ready for discharge and a parent isn't willing to do it, that's, that's really where the tension arises in a lot of these cases. So it's, I just want to be clear. It's not, it's not about re- rejection, refusal, or lack of resources. It, it's really more about a lack of meeting of the minds. So when there are something called uncared for petitions filed, give me an idea of what that means. Sure. So actually, this is very interesting because a couple of years ago, a number of parents came to me and said, look, we, our children are not uncared for. We love them deeply, but we cannot take care of them. And so they're, and they came to me at the legislature and said, but we hate this uncared for petition. We are prepared to let you take our children because we can't do it anymore. But please don't say our children are uncared for. So I worked very hard to try and get some legislation passed that basically creates a different category for that subset of families to say the child has specialized needs and the parents can't meet those needs. And I think everybody would agree under the set of circumstances I've just described. And um, unfortunately, frankly, certain members of the advocacy community uh, didn't quite understand what I was saying, thought it was a rejection of services, and fought against the legislation. And I'm, I'm hoping, again, that we can revisit it this year because, again, these are parents who have said, we're not abandoning our children. We just can't do it, and we want you to do it for us, but please don't say that they were uncared for because they were deeply cared for and deeply loved, and I respect that. I think the uncared for petition, come putting my former hat back on, to me, the uncared for petition is almost like a plea bargain. I mean, that to me is the best use of it. So you have parents who where it really may be an, an issue of abuse and neglect, but they don't want to admit to that. So you sub it down to an uncared for, and everybody says, fine, that's, we're, we're happy. We don't need to rub your nose in it. We just need to make sure that the kids get what they need. And I, I think probably the best use of an uncared for petition is in that instance as, a, as essentially a plea bargaining tool. But I think there's a subset of families who really do care deeply for their children, but they just can't do it anymore, and I respect that. Let's take a quick call before we go to break. Uh, Lisa's calling from Torrent, and Lisa, you're on the show. Good morning. I'm just calling. I, I, I'm hearing, you know, this idea that some of these folks, um, probably including myself, are reaching a point where we're just done and are abandoning all, all hope and and needing needing to be done. And I think on a certain level that that's accurate in terms of bringing the child home to be to live in a situation where we really do not see that as being feasible I think that I I have been in that situation myself and I've met many people in that situation but I don't think that that's actually um, a point of abandonment and I think that's where the conversation needs to be happening and I think that um, it would it would be very very good if we could continue to have a conversation where where we're able to talk about that particular subset of families because I do believe that that is where some of the greatest harm is being done and what's being perceived as abandonment is really truly a desperation and the children are harmed um, when they're separated from those families and that's that's really what we need to look at. And so I don't think this is something that we can resolve in a short period of time. I appreciate the department's willingness to talk about the issues and look at them, but I I would just ask whether or not we can find some way 
to continue a dialogue between that particular set of families because there's a lot to be learned there. Thank you, Lisa. Commissioner Katz. Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much, first of all, for calling in. And uh, I think I think we've met along the way, and I'm, I'm really happy to continue that dialogue because I can't um, – you're right. It's not something we're going to solve in, a, in an hour interview. And I think each case is different. And the, the the important part of the department, I think for your sake and for all parents' sake, is that each child should be treated individually and each case is, is unique. And I think the tension does come from the situation that you've just described where, you know, no one wants to accuse a parent in that circumstance of abandonment. Um, but the department sometimes is is at a loss because from the standpoint of when we've got medical professionals telling us this child can go home, we then have to figure out, all right, well, the parent isn't ready to take the child home, and sometimes it's it's a, a, out of concern for other children in the home, and I understand that. So what else can we do if we have the medical doctors telling us well, your child no longer needs institutional care, uh, the child can go home, but what can we do to help you serve that child so that you can safely maintain the child in the home with other children and still get the services. And and I heard the earlier call about ICAPS. ICAPS is just one of many, uh, many treatment modalities that, that we can provide, and, and you know that. And I think uh, I really do want to thank you so much for your call because I, I – and, and thank you for what you've done on behalf of your children. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll talk, keep talking about this as well as some other issues before DCF, including the closure of the Connecticut Juvenile Training School, hopefully by middle 2018. Again, if you have a question or comment, 860-275-7266. We'll be back after a short break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking with Commissioner Joette Katz, who leads the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. Her Deputy Commissioner, Fernando Muniz, is also here in studio to take your calls or your questions, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And before we transition to the Juvenile Training School, which has been a hot topic this past uh, year and a half, uh, we're getting a tweet from a listener, Chris, who writes, uh, what is the agency doing to increase trans- Transparency and respect for foster parents. Who wants to take that one? Deputy Commissioner Muniz, <laughs> you're on the hot seat. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we've long had a, a partnership with the Connecticut Association of Foster Families, um, and uh, we do a lot of work around the state to make sure that foster parents are supported. Uh, we've had a campaign internal to the department to really promote uh, the importance of foster families, uh, and so there's a lot of work that we've done in that area. I want to uh, take a, another call before we go again to the juvenile training school. Um, someone's calling uh, related to what we had talked about earlier. Uh, Victoria from New Hartford. Victoria, you're on the show. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to make a comment, um, uh, Commissioner Katz, that we utilized the ICAPS program and had a, a very positive experience with it. Um, uh, we did not have a great experience through the voluntary services aspect of it, but the program itself uh, was a, a life changer for us, um, but uh, we're also right now currently experiencing uh, being a foster family. And I do have a question about. Um, it appears uh, this is a, again the first time we've, we've experienced uh, foster services uh, caseworkers in the DCF office. It appears that there's a lot of new caseworkers. I don't know if that's a true statement, and are they? What's the kind of training that they go through there? 
and, and caseloads that they have. Like right now, I know our, the caseworker that we're working with has like 25 cases. Mm-hmm. And so what is the what is the training that they go through? And it, are they, I, it, the positive is that it sounds like they're getting more um, staff, but maybe the downside is, you know, what is the training? There's just been some inconsistent experiences. Thank you, Victoria, for that call. So that's a good question. You know, what is the caseload and what's the difference between a caseworker and a social worker? Sure. So all our social workers uh, undergo about a 10-month training period. And during that time, they take approximately 25 classes at our training academy that range from family engagement to legal work uh, to all the things that they need to do, case planning. Uh, And uh, during the early months, we add cases to their caseload to get them up to, right now, our average caseload is about 13 cases per caseworker. Uh, And so all of our social workers um, uh, carry different types of cases. What she may be referring to is that we have uh, some social workers that are liaisons to the foster families, and their caseloads are a little bit higher. Um, And those are the folks that provide support to the foster families, not necessarily carry the cases of the children on the caseload. And what is the ideal caseload, so to speak? Uh, we're at about the ideal. The the uh, Child Welfare League of America says that the ideal caseload is about 15 cases per social worker. Uh, but in addition to looking at cases, uh, the commissioner's been very clear over the last couple of years that we're really worried about workload. And one of the things that's happened uh, through the implementation of differential response is that our lower risk cases are now being served by community provider agencies. And so all of our cases that our social workers are now handling are the higher risk cases. And so we really try to maintain their caseload at 13 or lower. And explain differential response. So this is how if a call comes in, you kind of, you weigh whether how DCF should respond because it's not like every case you come in and take a child. Absolutely. So, so the assessment is the same. But what DRS or differential response is, is aimed at is families where there are no safety issues and minimal risk. So again, getting back to my earlier comment about people shouldn't have to come into the department. Their children should not come in, have to come into care and custody. I should not have to be their parent for them to be able to receive services. So the differential response route has allowed us to essentially not, uh, to, to not treat everybody uniformly. And not everything requires a forensic analysis. So when we determine that children are safe and that um, there's minimal risk and we can treat their families in the community without the cases being officially opened on our books, we do that. The, um, that's the good news. What that means, though, and Fernando just mentioned, is that the cases coming into our care and custody are that much more challenging. So, Or, or, or let's put it this way. There's no easy case. So I, I go around the state and I often analogize to going into your pediatrician's office. And so, you know, sometimes kids are there for inoculation or a well visit, and some kids are there because they have very serious uh, illnesses. Well, right now, the kids coming into our care and custody, we don't have any kids just coming in for, for routine inoculations to, to follow through with that analogy. And that means that the work, it's really not just about caseload, it's about workload. And that's what I, I constantly talk to people about and, um, and, and make sure that they understand that it's not just the number of cases one has on one's docket, so to speak. It's really about the work associated. And so we have liaisons. We have, um, we have support workers because, again, it's not just the social worker looking after the children. It's also trying to figure out what does the family need. And if I can just follow up very briefly in that regard. So uh, six years ago, we had about 15 percent of our kids going to kin or family members when they came into foster care. And right now we are up to 43 percent. 
And so how do we how one of the ways we got there is we instituted uh, considered removal meetings. So when a case comes to our attention and we find out that obviously there's a, a significant issue and there's a safety and there's a safety issue and a risk, et cetera, we immediately convene uh, before removal, and we've been able to do this in 78% of the cases. So before a child comes into care, we bring everybody to the table, and we say to the family, bring your lawyer, bring your doctor, bring your minister, bring everybody that you can to the table so that we can figure out together how to ensure that child's safety. Of the 78% of the cases that we did prior to removal, half those children did not come into care, which means we were able to keep them in their home and provide whatever it was they needed in their home. Half of the children who did come into care, of those, half went to kin or family. We call them fictive kin, kin, people that the children knew. And we, we like to do that whenever possible because we find out, uh, we know, again, from, from uh, national literature, that children achieve permanency faster. There's less use of psychotropic drugs, a few other things. So half of those children go to kin. Now, the reason I mention that is some of the kin or the family have some of the same challenges that the parents have. So again, it, it can't be a dump and run. It's okay, you're gonna take care of your grandchild, but what do you need to be able to safely maintain that grandchild? And those are the services that we also help provide to that family. And that requires actually in some ways even more work because again, not only do they have some of the challenges, but, but they also may have some issues and dynamics with their own children who are the parents of the children that we're talking about. So all of this is to say that um, uh, we we really try and do a lot of work at the department, in particular around foster care, and our numbers and that because that's where the kids go. They're not going into congregate care; they're going into foster care. So about forty three percent of our kids are in uh, kin foster care, and about forty three percent are with what we call core core foster families, much like your caller. Uh, and I I just want to give a shout out because again uh, I think people sometimes misunderstand me. I I revere those people. I really do, and and they have. Uh, they all, they all have come to the table, and it's remarkable what they've all been able to accomplish. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, you're hearing Commissioner Joette Katz, who leads the Department of Children and Families. Um, I, had to, I have to ask, Commissioner, you mentioned uh, kin care. Obviously, a lot of advocates um, are praising the fact that you're able to keep these children who in the past were just uh, you know, languished in the foster care system with strangers, many of them going to relatives. Uh, but again, you know, there was a high-profile report just the other month about a case where a, a baby was placed. I think his pseudonym was Dylan, mm -hmm. uh, placed with a relative of, of a mother, um, and that ended badly, where mm -hmm. the child was hospitalized, um, severely malnourished, and there were a lot of questions about how that case was handled through the many levels, many departments within the Department of Children and Families. We heard from uh, child advocate Sarah Egan, who issued a report after um, this case, uh, Dylan, uh, rose to the public eye. Let's hear what she had to tell us on the show. How did this happen? Dylan was 13 months old when he came in. He's coming in abused and neglected or maltreated. He has already has global developmental delays. He's placed into a foster home that even at first glance does not come close to meeting state licensing criteria for foster parents. Um, they demonstrate no capacity to meet the complex needs of a maltreated uh, baby. Um, they didn't pass the background checks. They had prior child protective service history, uh, lengthy. They had uh, prior criminal history. Um, they had no income. Um, they had health issues, which some of which were known to the department. 
There was no analysis of how any of these issues were resolved or not. There was no analysis of how these problems impacted their ability to care for this child. It is a stunning, staggering tragedy and a staggering collapse of a series of safeguards that all failed. And that's what has to be looked at. So that was child advocate Sarah Egan just a month ago. Commissioner Katz, what happened with that case? So when uh, that report came out, I want to be clear, that case was already a year and a half old, and we had already attended to it. Um, It just came to the public eye by virtue of of, uh, Sarah's report. And I often say, you know, I don't wait for an OCA report to tell me, uh, particularly because of if it's a year and a half later, can you imagine? So... Uh, but but also, I also want to be really clear, at that time when it did come to the public's attention, um, I think what I said specifically many times was, I offer no excuses and only apologies. Uh, workers were disciplined, uh, long-term um, managers, people who had been with the department uh, combined 50 years, received serious discipline, uh, practices changed, and there's no excuse. I mean, there's absolutely no excuse. That was not kin care. That case never came to my attention. I mean, there are waivers that come to my attention that never came to my attention. And that was just a systemic failure. Absolutely. But I want to be clear, you don't judge a system by one case. And that's what the public tends to do. They'll see one bad case, and they won't look at the 36,000 successful cases. Mm. And so, again, I I offer uh, no excuses and only apologies for that. Mm -hmm. You say that the public looks at the one bad case, but this was just a uh, as Sarah mentioned, a staggering, uh, it was. staggering case. I mean, the idea that this baby um, was near starvation when it was—it's hor- It was yeah. horrifying, and mm-hmm. it was absolutely horrifying. And it had come to my attention uh, again a year and a half prior to her report coming out. And the moment it came to my attention, we we began the process of HR. And and again, it's not just about disciplining people or terminating people. It really is about trying to figure out what uh, what. Does this speak to, and uh, what do we need to, need to do to attend to it, not just the individual people? Mm-hmm. You said that there were specific changes made long before um, Sarah Egan's report. So tell us specifically what changed um, in terms of uh, this was a home that wasn't licensed. So mm-hmm. did you look at other homes that had that s- similar situation where a child was placed and whether that was a pr- appropriate placement? Every child uh, in every office uh, was uh, uh, reexamined every single child to make sure that children who had been placed with kin who had um, who had history. So that's the other thing I want to be really clear about. Sometimes families are messy. So when, when we look to kin, as I alluded to earlier, some of, some of the kin have some of the same problems that the parents do. do. Um, but often, hopefully, uh, the more serious problems are in their past. And so what we do is we have a process in place now if, in fact, a child is going to be placed with someone who has a CPS history or who has a criminal history. We have an entire protocol that everybody in the chain of command has to has to look at and examine and interviews and services. And eventually, because people do find redemption, people do grow up, fortunately and thankfully. And so, and then if everybody in the chain of command is satisfied that this child can be safely maintained in this home, that then comes to me for final approval. And again, sometimes we have to. I look at these cases, and I may have additional questions, and uh, and figure out what other services the family might need to again to be able to safely maintain that child. So that's an example of an entire systemic overhaul of what we did in response. 
I want to take another call before we um, have to head to break. This hour is going quickly. Eileen's calling from Naugatuck. Eileen, you're on the show. Hi. I was actually one of the, the people that was interviewed by Lisa Chedico. Um I have a, a lot to say, and I'll try to say as much as I can in the short amount of time. Uh, I have I, I was kinship care for two um, of my children. I have six altogether, and um, um, I'm also a social worker and a long, long, long time ago DCF uh, worker. I also work in mental health now, and one of the things I do is look at um, programs. And I would say for DCF, um, there just seems to be, there is a big disconnect from administration all the way down. There are so many things happening on, on, on the street level with the kids. Um, voluntary services does not work. Um, I, it took me a month to fill out applications for voluntary services only to be told after being ignored for a month to apply, um, told when I called, never got any paperwork or any responses. When I called, oh, by the way, um, you're, you're denied. All we offer is ICAPs because there's no money, so there's, we can't serve you. So there are so many things happening that, that people don't understand. Um, and the other, uh, the other big word with DCF, you always hear about the children and the parents. One thing that you don't hear about is the family. Um, the family is so deeply affected by the, the children um, that you take in for kinship or adopt, or adopt, and the entire family is affected. For where you go from one one way of living to having locks on doors, cameras in your house, um, fearing what when the shoe is going to drop because there's an attitude change. Um, it, it's it's not a way to live. And the conversation before about, um, you know, people just don't want to take their children back. Oh, my gosh. You, we, we go beyond everything to keep our children and to make a good life for not only our kinship or adoptive kid care kids, but we try to help them thrive. But, but what happens because attachment is not recognized or not treated enough in the state there are not enough services in the state to deal with these attachment deep attachment disorders um, the entire family starts to wither but DCF doesn't come in and say okay I'm gonna work and work with the family Eileen we're short on Eileen we're short on time what would you like to see Commissioner Katz do Um, the conversation needs to change uh, the culture of DCF is punitive and, and it's health and wellness, for, for DCF to do health and wellness, when the culture of DCF is abuse and neglect, the two don't mix. I have never met anybody that wants to go to DCF for help. Um, All right, let's let, let's let Commissioner Katz respond. I know that was a long, uh, a long comment, but Commissioner Katz, again, lots of frustration. I mean, I'm sure you work with a lot of families that uh, there's a a good relationship. They feel like their needs are being met. And then you have families like Eileen who are frustrated. What can you tell them? Well, the first thing I would encourage her to do, if she hasn't already, is actually to call Ken Meiserglan in the ombudsman's office, who is, uh, who is really my, um, my extension in the community. And, uh, 
That would be the first place I would ask you to call because Ken can then, frankly, he and his staff can sit down with you, sit down in partnership with the office and figure out really where the where the disconnect is. Because I think one of the hallmarks, frankly, of this administration has been around family engagement and partnership. So I'm very sorry to hear that, that you continue, that you still see us as a punitive agency because, frankly, I think not only is that not uh, not what's going on, it's certainly not the message that I would want to convey. And before we go to break, just quickly back to the, the Dillon case, you said that you did a review um, to see if there were other similar situations where a child was placed into a home and there was a licensing waiver. Did you find uh, more cases that were handled that way? Uh, fortunately, uh, we found that all the children were safe. But there there were a few other cases, absolutely, that um, where people misunderstood protocol and they had to go back and do some additional legwork. But again, nothing, nothing of that nature and nothing that would suggest that the children were not safe. And in fact, as I said, frankly, all of them were not only safe, some of them had re- been reunified, but all of them were thriving. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I promise we're going to talk about the juvenile training school. We can't forget that. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the Department of Children and Families. Commissioner Joette Katz is here, as well as her Deputy Commissioner Fernando Muniz. Now you have been, uh, Commissioner Muniz, uh, you have been leading efforts to figure out the plan to close the juvenile training school. This is something that Governor Malloy um, told us about last December, that he wanted to see uh, that facility closed in Middletown. The plan has been submitted to JPOC, the Juvenile Justice Oversight and Planning uh, Committee. Tell us about the plan. How is it going to happen? Sure. So since the governor called for the closure of the training school last year, the commissioner asked me uh, to lead a planning effort uh, that was a pretty inclusive process that we led uh, last spring and summer. And I recall you came to one of our focus groups that we did in Hartford. Uh, So we did about 20 focus groups across the state. Uh, We consulted with a number of national foundations and experts in juvenile justice. And essentially, the, the plan that we've developed isn't just about the closure of the facility, It's about creating the environment in the juvenile justice system that would allow uh, for more youth to be served in the community and in their homes and fewer youth to be served in the facility. Um, So we have a multiple-stage process uh, that's already underway. We're looking at changing some of our job descriptions at the facility to make it more therapeutic in nature and less correctional, which is one of the criticisms that folks have had. Uh, And then we're also looking at uh, other facilities that could serve to replace the secure capacity that we have at the training school. A lot of lawmakers have been paid attention to the juvenile training school uh, simply because of price tag. It costs a lot to run that facility. The census has gone down considerably. I think there's what maybe 40 some? 47. 47 youth that are um, housed there now. And um, we should mention that most of the kids that um, DCF um, handles, so to speak, on the delinquent side, it's a small percentage, right, compared to the others on your um, neglect side. And so these are some of the kids that end up at the juvenile training school, not all. Uh, we spoke to uh, Maureen Price Borland on a show. She's executive director of Community Partners in Action. I'm sure you both know her well. And one of the things when you said about the community forums, uh, Commissioner Muniz, their con- the concern of community providers is, well, if we close the facility, we save millions. How will the state get that money back into the community to help providers like community uh, partners in action and others help these youth. What is your response to them? Yeah, that's right. CJTS is a very uh, expensive program, but part of the reason that it's so expensive is that it's a completely self-contained, secure residential facility. So it has 
uh, its own medical department, uh, clinical department. We operate a school there for the boys. Uh, so uh, for many of the community provider agencies that serve young people, uh, some of those services are farmed out uh, to the local community, the local schools, and those kind of things. Uh, as we continue to downsize the training school, I think some of the dollars that, that are saved there could potentially be used for community programs. Um, I think one of the things that people um, don't understand is that the dollars that were saved by downsizing it to date are already out of the DCF budget. Um, and so, you know, with these tough fiscal times, uh, that's one of the things that, that we had to let go of when we moved from staffing for 150 youth to 50. So are you saying that, you know, that there's a potential that some of the savings when the training school closes could go back to the community providers, but that's really out of your hands? Right. I mean, with the state facing a one point four, one point five billion dollar deficit in the coming year, you know, I think that'll be up to the Appropriations Committee and the governor to make decisions about uh, where those resources could potentially be housed. Um, the one thing uh, that's happened over the last several months, though, is that the population seems to have stabilized at around 45 to 50. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that it would get much smaller than that in the near future. So we'd have to really take a look at how much smaller could we make any future facility. We've heard from advocates that say if the juvenile training school closes, which has been a long time call from them, um, they don't want to see a mini juvenile training school in a community. And so uh, what's the plan? Because there may be some kids who do need technically a secure facility. What's the plan um, in this uh, final plan that you submitted to JPOC to handle that? Where would these facilities be? Sure. So we're looking at a number of facilities uh, that the state already owns to see uh, what could be converted potentially to secure space. And and I think... um, the concern about the training school looking too correctional uh, is mostly about the housing units themselves. Um, so folks walk into the housing units and see locked doors and very small windows and um, and I think rightfully so criticize it for being too much of a correctional model. Uh, so we're engaging an architect from the Department of Administrative Services. Uh, we're visiting some other states. Uh, so we'll be in, in New York City uh, in January. We've been invited to go see Missouri, which uh, you know is a national model around smaller facilities to really try to understand what it would look like to be secure but not correctional. Um, and so we've, uh, we'll be visiting the High Meadows facility, which, uh, which is a former DCF facility uh, that's been closed since 2009. We're going to be looking at some other places uh, to see what we could convert for that kind of secure space. And so is it likely that we would see the training school? Are you on uh, the right track to get the training school closed by middle 2018 as the governor um, recommended? Yeah, I, I believe we are. I think, you know, we'll have to determine, you know, where we could put 50 or so beds or 40 or so beds, whatever the number ends up being. Um, I think we'll also be looking at the training school itself uh, to see if that space could be retrofitted and, and sort of redesigned uh, into a different kind of facility in the event that we're not able to secure other space. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that's been pretty clear since we mentioned uh, some potential uh, locations across the state is that already folks in those communities are concerned um, you know, it's very difficult to open up a juvenile justice facility anywhere, um, and, and I think people in those communities are already expressing a concern about us doing that. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Thomas has been holding from Danielson. Thomas, you're on the show. Quickly. Yes, good afternoon. I was curious about the um, the situation with the children where the children does not want to be with his biological parents, but he'd rather be with his um, adopted, well, not adopted, because I was supposed to be adopted. But I had a situation where they were 
I was going to be adopted, but I had another family member who I barely knew came up and attested it. And, of course, this is quite a few years ago. Has that changed? So your question, Thomas, and I'll have uh, either uh, Commissioner Katz or Deputy Commissioner Muniz respond. When a child does not want to go back to his biological family, but the state says they have to, is that still a policy? It sounded like that's that's what happened with Thomas. You know, you're you're catching me. Um, I feel like I have half the information. So uh, I'm I'm a little bit at a loss, Thomas, because uh, first of all, as you said, it was a long time ago. So I have no idea what the court proceedings were, what a judge determined, uh, what the issue with your biological family was versus somebody else. So these things are not done uh, in isolation. Uh, It's not just DCF acting um, alone. And so, again, without more information, it's hard for me to to give you a a categorical answer, but uh, it's a much more complicated uh, conversation. So perhaps if we can continue to have this offline, I would, Mm -hmm. and you can better inform me, I, I could better answer you. I'll ask our I'll call screener to get Thomas's information so that Perfect. we can forward that to Thank you. you. I'll take another call. Um, Carl's been holding from Wallingford. Carl, just a few minutes left to the show. What's your comment or question? Hi, just a comment. Um, long-time listener, first-time caller. So I'm a foster parent, and my husband and I recently adopted our son, who was placed with us after about eight months in care. And so I don't really have a question, but I just wanted to commend DCF, our social workers, and Commissioner Katz for really allowing us to have such an incredible foster-to-adopt experience. And I know DCF sometimes receives bad press, and of course this always seems to bubble to the surface first. So I just wanted to put it out there that the agency is really doing a great deal of good, and we look forward to growing our family through DCF. Thank, thank you for your call, but more importantly, thank you for, uh, for the opportunity that you've given a, a very lucky child. All right, another call. Uh, Deborah from Colchester. Deborah, you're on the show. Hi, yes. My grandson was taken from his home by... Uh, DCF uh, via a SWAT team, uh, many police, and because the his doctor said he uh, she, he wasn't being treated properly for his asthma, so my daughter was smart enough to uh, demand an ambulance to a hospital. And when he got there, he was in no distress whatsoever. Um, DCF uh, hid him from us took him, gave an inaccurate uh, time that he left the hospital, uh, and uh, it took a month to get him back after appealing, and he was placed in a home with carpets and pets, uh, an unclean home where his home was cleaner. So, uh, And the family is still very traumatized, as I am myself. Uh, you know, we get really angry when we think about that. All right, Deborah, uh, yeah. we, we just have a couple mm-hmm. of minutes. Let me have uh, Commissioner Katz respond. So, again, this is a family that had a very bad experience with a child that was taken from a relative's home. I guess the question, the larger question is when these um, interactions happen, what is the first step for where people feel like their concerns will be addressed if they contact DCF? Who can they contact? Well, again, I, I hate to put him on the spot, but uh, in addition to working with the office that's involved, uh, both social worker and the area office director and regional administrator is, if necessary, uh, but if you don't feel that your concerns are, are being heard within the office that served you, then again, I would encourage you to please contact the ombudsman's office, again, Ken Meiserglan and his staff, because they they uh, are on two doors down from me, and believe me, we have a, a constant dialogue, and these are the kinds of things that I 
not only am interested in knowing about, but need to know about. We just got a tweet from Maureen who writes, the ombudsman department is non-responsive to family concerns and disrespectful to parents, bias the department's position and posture. And this is something that I know that lawmakers have brought up in the past. Uh, what's your take on that if they don't feel like the ombudsman is being responsive to them, Commissioner Katz? Well, I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about that because uh, when I hear that, I often then find out that they didn't even try to contact the ombudsman's office. Uh, there's, there's somebody out there who shall remain nameless at the moment who's telling people, oh, don't bother to call. So the calls aren't even coming in, and then people are just perpetuating that rumor. So again, if, if people are not being responded to, I want to, I want to differentiate between not being responded to and not getting your way, because I think there's obviously a, a real difference there. But if people aren't being responded to, then you write me directly, and I invite people to do that regularly. I'm happy to say it doesn't happen very often. I've heard that in the past, too, from parents and advocates. Would you um, support an independent ombudsman that's not someone within the Department of Children and Families to handle these kinds of concerns? Well, I think we have that. Uh, we have it through Federal Monitor. We have it through the OCA. We have it through all the advocacy groups. And what I can tell you is when I have an ombudsman who whom I work with closely in that office, they are available to me 24-7, and I use them 24-7. I'm not sure I'd get the same kind of response from an outside entity. We just have a couple minutes left, Commissioner Katz. Another session ahead. What are some of the biggest challenges you're going to be facing? Well, I think fiscal is always a concern. Uh, It's a a concern throughout the state. Um, I'm hoping that uh, January will be a discussion and approval of the new exit plan for 1F which is uh, really, from my viewpoint, I think everybody who's looked at it, a huge accomplishment and recognition that the agency is not the agency it was when it was sued. Uh, It's a reduction of 22 outcome measures to six, some of those six being uh, teased apart so that some of the domains have been lifted. It, um, It allows the agency to focus on some of the more challenging areas, and it commits uh, the state to certain funding that will be necessary and staffing uh, that will be necessary to allow us to, to get out. That's right. So that was a, a court oversight uh, for more than 27 years. You're getting closer to getting out of that. Correct. And I hope to be spending January on just doing that. All right, Commissioner Katz, uh, the time has run out. I knew it was going to happen, but uh, we hope that you'll come back soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Also, Deputy Commissioner Fernando Muniz. Thank you. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson, Lydia Brown. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.